0: Hi, my name is Annalise, and the Old Testament reading is Psalm 72, 1 through 4. God, give your judgments to the king, give your righteousness to the king's son. Let him judge your people with righteousness and your poor ones with justice. Let the mountains bring peace to the people, let the hills bring righteousness. Let the king bring justice to people who are poor. Let him save the children of those who are needy, but let him crush oppressors. The word of the Lord. New Testament reading, Revelation 19, 1 through 2. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and avenged her on the blood of his servants. The word of the Lord. If you are able, please stand for the gospel reading, John twelve twenty seven through 33. Now I am deeply troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this time. No, for this is the reason I have come to this time. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard and said, it's thunder. Others said an angel spoke to him. Jesus replied, this voice wasn't for my benefit, but for yours, Now is the time for judgment of this world. Now, this world's ruler will be thrown out. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to me. He said this to show how he was going to die. The gospel of the Lord.
1: Amen. Let's remain standing as we pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word to us, we thank you for the way that you speak to us. So come now, we pray, and take your word and speak it into our hearts. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, minds to understand, hearts to believe and respond to you with faith and surrender. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good evening, New Life Downtown. it's uh, it's been a little while. <laughs> it's great to be able to be up here and speak to you this evening. I'm so grateful uh, for your prayers. It's been 14 weeks uh, since I was last able to preach, and I'm just so thankful. Uh, for the way that you have, have, have cared and encouraged, and uh, many of you with texts and, and cards and meals and uh, all of that stuff, and even uh, putting up with my, um, when I've showed up to church and not really been able uh, to talk and just kind of sign language. Some of you even uh, witnessed my um, text-to-speech app that I was using, uh, which was sort of awkward, but uh, the kids really liked it because it, it, it was hard to take me seriously when it was a computer voice saying, please stop that now. But to annoy them, I would just keep playing it. Please stop that now. Please stop that. Please stop that now. I want to honor tonight, uh, Pastor Jason Jackson. Uh, Hold your play. Hang on, hang on. on. I know, I know, I know. You're gonna erupt, but let me just say it properly. Uh, Jason, you may not know this, but right before the pandemic occurred, uh, Jason took on a new responsibility at work here at the church, and he joined the senior team, which usually involves uh, overseeing different areas that touch a few different congregations. and And Jason joined the senior team to oversee the creative and communication department and the AV tech production crew. Now, both of those teams are led by wonderful individuals, but Jason took over the oversight and management and helped line things up just in time for those two departments to become the most important departments in the whole of the church. So not only did Jason take on all of that sort of management kind of responsibilities, but he continued and has been an amazing pastor with his phone calls and appointments and hospital visits and so much more. And then, as if that weren't enough, he just said, okay, yes, I'll preach 14 out of 16 weeks in a row. That's what he did. So I want you tonight to honor Pastor Jason Jackson, the amazing job that he's done. Someone asked me if I deliberately you know, conjured up this a health challenge because our series was on the Book of Revelation, and I didn't want to preach on it. Uh, no, that's not true. But I am very thankful that I'm coming back at the I'm at the tail end of this book. <laughs> um, so, for those of you who may not know, what, what what happened is at the end of July, I discovered that I had a non-cancerous polyp on my vocal cord, and uh, they told me they said you're probably going to need surgery. I said, well, let's just try to avoid that. See if rest can 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 uh, solve it. And it wasn't able to, and, and by mid-September, I realized I, I was going to need surgery. And not only was there this polyp, but there was also a, a blood vessel that was hemorrhaging like crazy, and the pictures are quite gross, but basically my right vocal cord was filling up with pools of, of two pools of blood. I know, I'm going to gross you out. But then again, we are talking about uh, prostitutes and whores and lake of fire and beasts and dragons, so uh, it's all over now in church. Um, But I I, I discovered that not only would they need to to cut out this polyp, but they needed to laser uh, this blood vessel that was hemorrhaging so that it wouldn't... um uh, you know, keep, keep causing problems. And when you're facing situations like that, I think in those moments you think, well, who's the right person? Who do I go to? Uh, is it this doctor? Is it this doctor? Which surgeon is uh, the one that could help, to, you know, sort of take care of it? And I'm so grateful to have found um, an incredible surgeon and to have had access to it because of our uh, insurance and to live in a country where we have some of the greatest uh, healthcare and, and medical professionals uh, in the world. So I'm so thankful for all of that, but it put me deeply in touch in my own, sort of heart with that feeling of, I need help, and I need to find someone who can help me. I'm stuck. I'm in a situation that I can't change. I can't reverse. There's an insurmountable challenge. And when you face those kinds of moments and those kinds of seasons, you say, I need someone to save me. I need someone to lift me out of the situation we're in. We're facing some difficult odds, a difficult season. And maybe you felt that way. Odds are you have in the last seven months. Maybe it's because of a challenge with the business, maybe it's because of a health challenge, or maybe it's because of a financial difficulty or a relational strain that has developed. We know how difficult mental health has been for so many during this season feelings of loneliness and isolation. And so often when we feel the angst and the struggle and we say, who can change this? Who can fix this? Who can end divisiveness in our nation? Who can heal these tensions? Sometimes we think the solutions end up being a political thing. And we say, well, if I could just get this. And every four years as a country, we kind of go through this and we say, you know what, maybe this is the way we should go. Maybe this is the way we should go. And then only to find ourselves let down. We build up hope. We build up excitement. We build up enthusiasm. And then we understand that our answer, our solution, the, the ultimate thing that we're longing for is not actually political. And then other times we think, well, actually, the solution, the only salvation, though we may not use that word, is from science and technology. Now, I am so grateful for science and technology. I've just told you why. I'm grateful for low-heat lasers that can do delicate work and microsurgery, all of that. And yet, science and technology, in the end, cannot deliver us from the thing that we need saving from. At the beginning of the summer, I was talking to one of my doctoral supervisors in the UK, the Reverend Professor David Wilkinson. He's one of those brilliant guys, double PhD in astrophysics and systematic theology. Some of you New Life downtowners will remember when he came and spoke a few years ago. And David was saying to me, he said, You know, at the beginning of the 20th century, there was all of this hope that science and technology was going to change the world, was going to make all of our problems disappear. And yet, we discovered that technology in the wrong hands becomes an instrument of destruction, becomes a tool of oppression that it in itself is not our salvation. And so I think when we get disillusioned and we say, well, it's not this solution and it's not this solution, what we end up doing is we end up making our world very small and we say, well, I don't know about anybody else, but I'll take care of myself. And so we start to sort of privatize salvation. And we sort of say, well, I don't know what can fix the world, but I know what can take care of me. I'll take care of me. And this is why we feel the surge of motivation every year around December 31st slash January 1st. Because we think, well, I don't have a lot of agency or control over this or that, and I've been let down by systems and structures and technology. But, 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 but me, I can take care of me. We start to move along this world. We start to journey on in life thinking, imagining that actually we are the agents of our own salvation. The book of Revelation wants to disabuse us of that notion. The book of Revelation wants us to recognize that all our illusions of salvation will finally come to a crumbling end. The book of Revelation is going to bring us to the brink. In fact, as we've been journeying through this series, We've been talking about, this has been called The Last Word, and tonight we're going to explore the last word on salvation. The final word on salvation. What does this last book of the Bible say to us about ultimate salvation? And over the next couple weeks, we'll, we'll wrestle with that question. But so far in this series, and we've, we've, Jason's done an incredible job reminding us each week that this is a book that is revealing something. And first of all, the book of Revelation reveals who? Jesus. Right away. Verse, the, 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 this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not just that it comes from Jesus, but it's the revelation of Jesus. But secondly, it also is, reveals the condition of the church. You recall early in the series, we get this glimpse into what's going on in the churches. And then as we've gone on for very long, the long middle section of the book, it can hardly be called a middle section from about six or seven all the way to 18. It's like, whoo, what's going on? I just remind you that every epic series has a middle volume that is ponderously long. If you're a Tolkien fan, you know The Two Towers is like, oh Lord, when will this end? enough or that's kind of what happens here between revelation 6 and 18 it's the state of the world it has to be so long because there's so much that's wrong and now we're getting into this final lap where the book of revelation is revealing the end of the story but i want us to be careful here for a moment when i say the end of the story i don't just mean like the end like how it's going to end i mean end in the sense of goal What is the goal of history? Not simply the end of history. Sometimes we kind of live as Christians and we think, well, one day it's all just going to end and we're going to go somewhere else. And God will say, well, that was a terrible nightmare. So glad it's over. And well, have a harp, why don't you? But the book of Revelation is not interested in showing us the end as in just the cliff of history. It's the end as in the goal of history. The Creator has a goal in mind for His creation, and what we're about to see over the next couple weeks is this very goal, God bringing His creation to that very goal, the goal of history. Turn with me in your Bibles if you've got it to Revelation 19. We're going to bounce back and forth between Revelation 19 and Revelation 20, and I warn you, I haven't preached in 14 weeks, so I am under no uh, restraints to keep it short. Revelation 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. Somebody say this Hallelujah! Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. The first thing we see right away tonight is that salvation doesn't belong to a ruler, to a technology. Salvation doesn't belong to you or to me or to clever goals or answers or techniques. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. At the very culmination of human history, we finally will hear a chorus that says, you know what? This has always been true. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Who can save? The Lord and the Lord alone. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, you're in church So odds are you already know that. Odds are you already believe that. And you think, well, yeah, I mean, I I, I think that's true. But tonight we're going to press in deeper and we're going to ask ourselves, what does God's salvation actually look like? What does it actually look like? And I want to explore three things as we look through Revelation 19 and 20 to help us grapple with this question. And the reason I phrase it as what does it look like, because Revelation deals in symbols and images It doesn't spell it out for us, but we're going to try to parse out some of these images and say, what is it really saying to us? The first thing we want to say is that salvation looks like judgment on evil. It's maybe not the place we were expecting to start. Salvation looks like judgment? I thought salvation looks like, you know, butterflies and rainbows and nice feelings but you see, if, if there's something we're going to be saved from, then God has to deal with the source of that thing that enslaved us. In the Old Testament, the prime picture, the prime story of salvation is the Exodus story. And it's difficult if you've tried to read the Old Testament. It's difficult to read the Exodus story. And you're like, man, these plagues. And, and then the, the judgment on Pharaoh's household and his son. Died. I mean, this sounds terrible. It's true. Unless you recognize that this is the institution that was responsible for the oppression and enslavery of God's people. That this was the institution that built its pyramids and its empire on the backs of slaves. And then you say, okay, so God is really gonna deal with it. Yes, God is not interested in just delivering his people without dealing with the problem. He's gonna deal with it. He's going to deal with it. Revelation 19 Verse 2 and 3, His judgments are true and just. They've just said salvation belongs to the Lord. And the very next line out of their lips are, His judgments are true and just. The truth is, we don't actually have a problem with judgment. We have a problem with unjust judgments or untrue judgments. Haven't you been hurt by someone who's come to a conclusion about you? And you're like, Well, they made a judgment on me. And we think the answer is, Don't judge, don't be so judgy. But really what we're saying is, your judgment about me was not true. You said something about me that was not true. Now, I know none of you do that. (laughs) None of you have ever left a friend group or blocked someone on Facebook or left a church because you've come to an untrue judgment. I know that, that none of you have, right? Well, we don't like this. But they sing to God because they're saying your judgments actually are true. When you issue a judgment, we're like... Yeah, that's, that's right. And not just true, but it's just. Because he judged the great prostitute who ruined the earth by her whoring and exacted the penalty for the blood of his servants from her hand. And then they said a second time, hallelujah, smoke goes up from her forever and always. Now jump with me to Revelation 20. This is God now talk, dealing with the devil. He's thrown into the abyss. A few weeks ago when Pastor Jason was interviewing Professor Ben Witherington you heard him say that Revelation is a real downer for Satan, right? He goes from heaven to earth and earth to the abyss, the abyss to the lake of fire. This is that moment. Revelation 20, verse 10. Then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet also were. And their painful suffering will be inflicted upon them day and night forever and always. And then I saw a great white throne and the one who is seated on it. And before his face, both earth and heaven fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And scrolls were opened. And another scroll was opened too. And this is the scroll of life. And the dead were judged on the basis of what was written in the scrolls about what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and the grave gave up the dead that were in them. And the people were judged by what they had done. And then death and the grave were thrown into the fiery lake. Now here's a key sentence. And this, the fiery lake, is the second death. And then anyone whose name wasn't found written in the scroll of life was thrown into the fiery lake. We have to deal with this image for a moment because if you've been around Christians or Christianity, this has no doubt been the source of either <laughs> mockery or manipulation. <laughs> either you've heard that, this is a stuff, a dumb idea? Oh, some big hell someday, you know. Or it's been the source of manipulation where preachers have sort of said okay you better listen to or maybe you had parents that were like Johnny if you don't make your room God will send you to hell <laughs> and you're like oh my gosh what is going on here and you think about these images of torment and so I want to just put a pause in our outline and just say three quick things if you can about hell the first is that the lake of image the lake of fire imagery is really about a second death That's the main thing we're meant to see. Some people focus on the torment part of it, and they say, oh, would God ever torture and torment? But actually, when it talks about the day and night stuff, it's talking about the devil. And so there's a sense in which many many Christians over the years, as they've wrestled with it, have said, look, the image here is a second death, the ending of your existence. And so you've had great Christian uh, preachers like John Stott, the the British preacher who traveled with Billy Graham and was his sort of theologian uh, for many, many decades. And John Stott came to the conclusion and he said, you know, the idea is when you're judged by God, you will come to an end. And that's what we need to hang on to. You don't, you're not backed into a corner to say, well, well, if I don't believe in eternal conscious torment, then I must not be a real Christian. You're, you're not backed into that corner. The image is trying to say something to us. It's trying to say, there's a second death. And no matter what that death is like, you don't want death. You want life. You don't want the end of the existence that God intended for you. The second quick thing about hell is that the lake of fire was made for the devil. Revelation is clear about that much. It was made for the devil. It was made for all of the stuff that goes against and works against God's good world. And thirdly, those who cast their lot with the devil get to share his fate. This isn't God's intent, but he says, if you will, if you choose to bind yourself with Satan, with the beast, then you will share his fate. If you refuse to cling to the thing that has been nothing but destruction in my world, I will get rid of it, but I'll have to get rid of you in the process. And that sound, that's the, the reality of God's judgment and God, the finality of what God is dealing with. But as Jason said a couple of weeks ago, if you haven't heard his sermon on October 25th, you should go back and listen to it. Essentially, what Jason was saying to us is throughout the scriptures, we understand that for God to be loving, he must deal with evil. For God to be loving, he must deal deal with evil. God is not like those superhero movies where they kind of half deal with it. And then at the very end, before the final credits, you see the villain go <laughs> still alive to wreak havoc another day. The Book of Revelation says, no, it's coming to an end. This is why the final star Wars movie Palpatine must die. Come on guys. Really? Wow like a pin drop, no Star Wars people in here. And we have to do another sermon series after this. <laughs> when I was meeting with the surgeon who was gonna operate on my vocal cords, he says, look, I gotta be very careful when I do the laser. He said, because the, 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 the laser is drawn to blood and you've got so much blood in the tissue of your vocal cords that, it, it, you know, <laughs> I don't know if I should have heard all this, but he said, we, we gotta be careful not to cook the tissue was his phrase. And I was like, you know, I'm not really a medical guy, but that doesn't sound good, cooking the tissue. And he said, but listen, I've done this thousands of times. I've never once had it go wrong. I was like, okay, then you're the guy I trust. And the only question for Christians about the final judgment is not, well, what's God going to do about this? And what's God going to do about my neighbor? or What's God going to do with the tribal person who's never even heard of Jesus? And what's God going to Listen, there's all kinds of things that Christians want to argue about or, or, or an atheist wants to argue about or someone who doesn't believe wants to argue about. The only thing you have to do is sort of like me with, with my surgeon, Dr. Burns. The only thing you have to do is say, do I trust for the laser to be in your hands do I trust that you can hold the laser and not cook the tissue? And that's the question for Christians is, do you trust that God can issue the judgments, God can release the heat without destroying the good? That's what we're asked to do is. Do you trust God to hold judgment in His hand and not cook the tissue? What does salvation look like? Salvation, yes, looks like judgment, but salvation also looks like vindication for victims. Salvation looks like vindication for victims. For all who have experienced the devastating destruction of the devil, now there is vindication. Revelation 19, again Listen to this passage again. His judgments are true and just because he judged the great prostitute who ruined the earth by her whoring. And he exacted the penalty for the blood of his servants from her hand. And then they said a second time, hallelujah, smoke goes up from her forever and always. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. And they said, amen, hallelujah. And then a voice went out from the throne and said, praise our God, all you servants and you who fear him, both small and great. Has it occurred to you how strange it is that they're singing so much? (laughs) Like, like, I mean, I I understand singing if this was like the great wedding feast. But they're like seeing the beast burn up. They're seeing the great prostitutes with smoke coming up from here, and they're like having a praise party. Like that, what is going on here? The book of Revelation has more songs in it than any other book in the Bible except for the book of Psalms. Did you know that? And actually, as you get to the end of the book of Revelation, the, the rate of hallelujahs and little refrains just starts picking up momentum. Why? Because it's good news when God vindicates victims. It's good news when God delivers the oppressed. It's good news when God turns the table on the faithful martyrs who were persecuted for their faith and God says, no, 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 no. Rome couldn't ultimately take your life because you're mine. Now I will raise you up. It's good news when God does that. And so the fact that there's so much singing is this is the the reason for hope for these early Christians. Here they were looking around them and saying, no sign, no evidence of hope they're like, Jesus has conquered the grave. Well, where? How is anything different for me, they would have said. And John's saying, I just want you to know, one day you'll be singing around the throne. God will deal with Rome. God will deal with the empire that is feeding you to the beasts in the arena. God will deal with all of this. Just jump ahead with me to Revelation 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones and people took their seats on them. Who's sitting on thrones? I thought that was just one throne. There is one great throne, but now there's thrones, plural, little thrones. And people took their seats on them and judgment was given in their favor. Who are these people? They were the ones who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and God's word. Those who hadn't worshipped the beast or its image and who hadn't received the mark on their forehead or hand. They came to life And ruled with Christ for a thousand years. Now don't get hung up on the thousand years. Thousand in Hebrew uh, is sort of like us saying a bajillion. It was just sort of to the highest. Don't Don't get sidetracked by the details here. The idea is these very ones who were beheaded now sit on thrones and reign. It's a reversal. It's a vindication. It's God saying it looked like you were losing in life but now you're going to reign. It looked like your decision to forgive the person who hate, who hurt you was weak. The fact that you didn't take revenge, the fact that you didn't cut them out of your life, the fact that you found a way. Oh, weak sauce. That'll never win you a negotiation. Everything about the world that runs on the way of the beast says that that doesn't make any sense. That was dumb. Every one of those decisions in the end, you will see, turns out to be vindicated. When God says, here's your throne. You're like, what? But in life, it looked like I lost. In in life, it looked like I suffered. In in life, it looked like I just took it on the chin over and over. In life, it looked like I, I couldn't quite, you know, turn things around. In life, it didn't look like My side was winning. God's like, I know, but you patiently endured to the end. You didn't take the mark of the beast, which is not some microchip in your skin. It's it's a way of saying you didn't adopt the world's way. You didn't take on the system of power and control and manipulation. You chose humility and sacrifice and forgiveness. And maybe for some of you, you'll go to your grave with people saying, what a waste. That guy could have been so much, but you know, he decided to serve the Lord. In the end, John says, those are the people that are going to be on thrones, on thrones. I heard a story, I watched the video a few years ago of, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the African-American filmmaker Tyler Perry. Tyler Perry was at the BET Awards and was given this Lifetime Achievement Award for all that he had done and all the ways that he had opened up opportunities for African-American actors and actresses. and, And he gave this incredible speech where he said, yeah, I got tired of waiting for people to invite me to their table, so I decided to make my own table. And he told a story about his new studio in Atlanta, and he said, my studio in Atlanta, he said, used to be a base for the Confederate Army. And he took a minute to unpack that for the people. He said, think, he said, I want you to think about this. He said, that means on this very ground, there were soldiers who were plotting and planning to keep 3.5 million African Americans enslaved. And he said, today, that's now owned by one African American. And the crowd erupts and they're standing on their feet and he's telling the story. That's a picture of vindication. That's a picture of a reversal. But one day, we're going to see the cosmic version of that. We're on the stage before all eyes. We'll say, wow, your salvation was not only about judgment of evil, but it was about vindication for victims. The third thing I want us to see tonight is that salvation looks like a feast for the righteous, it looks like a feast. Revelation 19, 6 through 7, I heard something that sounded like a huge crowd, like rushing water and powerful thunder. And they said, hallelujah, there they are again, they keep singing, the Lord our God, the Almighty, exercise his royal power, let us rejoice and celebrate and give him the glory, for the wedding day of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And she was given, talking about the, a picture here of the church. And I hope you have under, have, have noticed by now, as Pastor Jason's been preaching, the, the different a parodies and parallels and you've got a, a beast and, and a lamb and, and you've got a, a prostitute and you've got a pure bride. And it says she was given this pure linen. Made herself ready for the wedding day. Made herself ready for the wedding day. Food. In the scriptures is this picture of, of sustenance, of delight and here's this feast. And God wants for all of us to enjoy this feast. You know, sometimes I think as Christians, we we imagine that God is sort of indifferent about us, that like he's sort of like the superhero that like saves the girl, and then she's like, thank you, Spider-Man. And he's like, or Superman really was more like, you know, no, you're welcome, just doing my job, you know. (laughs) And we sort of think, we're like, Jesus, thank you, you saved me. He's like, no problem, it's just who I am. You're like, know, I mean, is that, what? But here, Revelation chooses an intimate image to give us. It's a feast, but not just any feast, not just some sort of block party with random people. A wedding feast. And, and we're not just like guests. We're the bride. We're the bride. <laughs> My wife and I, Holly, we've been married 19 and a half years. And, and I remember when we, were, we got married at Shove Chapel downtown And remember, it's a long aisle. And remember as we were talking about it and walking through, she's like, man, this could be weird. All eyes are on me. I'm like, babe, it's your day. Better their eyes on you than on me, you know? And you recognize, any of you in the room who've been a bride, you know that the way, it's your day. Now think of this image. Here's John giving us a picture of the end. He says, you know what salvation's like? Salvation's like a wedding at which God has thrown a banquet and at which you are the beloved. You are the beloved. God is not cold or indifferent. God is not just doing his job, being all righteous and stuff. God is intimately connected to you and to me. Salvation is personal. It's absolutely personal. God came to save and to rescue because as John told us, God so loved the world. This isn't God just saying, well, I guess I better fix this. I guess it's getting bad out there. Maybe I should do something. This is God who is grieved by evil, grieved by sin, who says, I will come. I will die so that I can rescue them so that I can have a people as my own bride. This is personal for God. This is the language of intimacy. Salvation isn't just cosmic out there. We're not allowed to read the book of Revelation and think of salvation, it's judgment, it's vindication. No, it's a wedding feast. It's personal. And maybe as you hear that, you wonder tonight, well, you said a wedding feast for the righteous. I'm just wondering if that's me. Revelation 19, verse eight says she was given fine, pure, white linen to wear, for the fine linen is the saints' acts of justice. And there's this strange mystery in the Christian faith where is it our acts or is it God's gift? Well, it's, it's, which is the one that comes first? It's God's gift. And it's God's gift that makes our acts possible. And it's God's gift that makes our response possible. I want you to know tonight friends that the righteousness that God requires is a gift that God provides. The righteousness that God requires is actually the gift that God provides. And so here we are at the tail end and we're talking about a throne and judgment and people being judged by what they've done. You're like, "Oh my goodness, who can stand?" And he says, "Oh, hang on, hang on. I've got something for you. Here's your linen. Here's your rope. You can stand. You're the bride." For all of us who are in Christ, the, the throne of judgment need not be a source of fear for you. It need not be a place of, like, oh, oh the, the, the verdict on you, if you are in Christ, the verdict on you is settled. It's settled. And when you approach that day, the advocate, who John says in 1 John 2, we have an advocate with the Father, will clothe you. You'll stand before the throne and Jesus will say, oh, Father, That's one of ours. Redeemed. Here's your fine linen. Thank you, Lord. You don't have to think about this moment and say, oh, what's going to happen? It's been given to you. Righteousness that God requires is a gift that He provides. As the worship team comes tonight, I want us to close by this final question How do we respond? How do we respond to God's salvation? It's so much to take in, the judgment of evil, the vindication of victims, the feast, the wedding feast. How do we respond to this? The book of Revelation shows us two things that the church does over and over again. The first is faith and faithfulness. The saints at the end of the story are the ones who arrive at the end because of faithfulness. Patient endurance, as Jason has said over and over, patient endurance. Ones who not only have faith, but demonstrate faithfulness to the Lamb. Did not get the mark. Did not, resp- did not get sucked in to the world's way. Did not share that post on Facebook. <laughs> oh, that was a bit too close, huh? But said that there is another way. Our response to God's salvation is faith and faithfulness. But you know the other way? It's worship and adoration. It's worship and adoration. Here we get to the final chapters of the book of Revelation and they just can't stop singing. They can't stop singing because they're like, who else could have done this? Who else could have put an end to the beast and the harlot? Who else could have put an end to economic exploitation and violence and war? And who else could have put an end with sickness and disease? Who else could throw death and grave into the lake of fire? Who else could do that? Who else could have opened the scroll and broken the seals? Who else could have rescued from every tribe and tongue and nation and language? Who else could have redeemed for himself with his own blood? A people. Who else could have given us? Us whose righteousness was as filthy rags, Isaiah said. Who else could have given us fine white linen and called us a bride, a beloved? Who else could have done that? Only Jesus. Only Jesus.